If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you pray with me? We're just over a week out from the ring of fire eclipse, Holy One. When we donned our protective eyewear and collectively looked to the skies, astonished at how the moon slipped in front of the sun and delighted by the shadows cast in broad daylight. Politically speaking, the eclipse could not have come at a better time Astronomy has a way of reminding us that we are, as Carl Sagan wrote, a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam, which makes us reflect on how we are spending our time, wisely, thoughtfully, lovingly. As Professor Sagan observed, the Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. It has been said that astronomy is humbling and character-building experience. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Help us to stay with the feelings of awe and wonder that we felt last weekend, Holy One. Our eyes may not be looking to the skies anymore, but keep, please keep our hearts lifted that we might all pull in the same direction. With thanks to Carl Sagan, and in the name of our teacher Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then 
The Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. And he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what seems to be going on here when the Pharisees and Herodians team up to entrap Jesus. The Pharisees and Herodians are enemies, but Jesus is their common enemy, which is why we find them, according to Matthew, plotting together. The Pharisees were highly critical of Rome, while the Herodians actually aligned with the Roman Empire. It's right there in their name, a party that supported the Herodian dynasty, a puppet of the Roman Empire. But today, they set those differences aside so that they might get Jesus. So they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? For those hearing the story for the first time, there is an urge to borrow a line from Star Wars Episode VI, Return of the Jedi. The character Admiral Akbar, while engaging an ambush on an enemy weapon, is informed that enemy ships have arrived and realizing that the enemy army must be aware of their plans and prepared to defend itself, he exclaims, it's a trap! Indeed, Jesus, it's a trap. But Jesus knows. As theologian Debbie Thomas writes, the Pharisees of Jesus' day saw the tribute tax as a heretical and anti-nationalist capitulation to a pagan emperor, while the Herodians viewed refusing to pay the tax as sedition. Jesus understands that answering either way is a lose-lose proposition. He also knows that the question proceeds not from curiosity, but from pure malice. Though they approach him with flattery, oh teacher, we know you are sincere. Jesus knows that their intentions are sinister. So he takes a Roman coin, a coin that honors the Roman emperor as a deity, and offers the Pharisees and Herodians an ambiguous both and answer. Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. How typical of Jesus. 
Not only to respond to a challenge with an even greater challenge, but to insist that the relationship between faith and politics is too complex to reduce to platitudes or tweets. <laughs> it's important to stop here, writes Debbie Thomas, and note what Jesus does not say. Jesus doesn't say that there are two distinct realms, the religious and the secular, and that they require our equal fidelity. What he says is far more subtle and complicated. The coin is already the emperor's. That's his face stamped right on it. So give it to him. But then consider the much harder question. What belongs to God? What kind of tribute do we owe to God? The Roman coins of Jesus' day bore the image of the emperor. From the opening chapters of Genesis, we know that as human beings created by God, we bear God's image. God's likeness is stamped into us and upon us. God's signature is written into our very beings, which means if we keep the analogy going, that we owe God everything, our whole and entire selves. Any fantasy that we might harbor of dividing up the secular and the sacred is simply that, a fantasy. We cannot separate Caesar's realm from God's realm when everything, everything belongs to God. This means that our ultimate allegiance is to God. Yes, we are citizens of a particular country. Yes, most of us are registered with a partisan political party so we can vote. But neither of those things are more important than our faithfulness to God and to the kingdom of heaven. It seems today there are very many opportunities, people, causes, and ideologies vying for our loyalty, though. It is so very important in this particular moment to know to whom our heart and soul and strength belong, for us to make it clear that we are not loyal partisans giving unconditional support to any particular ideology, partisan platform, country, or government, but that we are faithful politicos whose highest commitments are to doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. We know just how important this is because of our most recent history. In her book, See No Stranger, Valerie Kaur explains that before Americans even had time to process our shock and count our dead after 9-11, our energies had been redirected for war. On the very night of the attacks, President Bush declared a war against terrorism and divided the world into us and them. You were either with us or against us. Grieving, though, is a process that takes time and stillness and presence. It is impossible to grieve and to prepare to kill at the same time. So despite all the performances of national mourning, we as a nation had little time and space to be present to our pain and all 
that it had to teach us. Unresolved grief inside a person is tragic. Unresolved grief inside a nation is catastrophic. It releases enormous aggression. In the name of the dead, the US war on terror that began in Afghanistan would come to span at least two decades, three presidencies, and 76 countries, cost more than $5.6 trillion, and kill more than one million people, one million. And every year on the 9-11 anniversary at Ground Zero, we repeat the same words. Meanwhile, the same aggression that powers a perpetual war abroad has created new norms for hate and criminalization of Muslims and immigrants at home. It fueled the resurgence of a white nationalist movement that would, in time, overtake the highest office in the nation. It did not have to be this way. History is littered with the wreckage of mass violence on the scale of 9-11. But 9-11 was the first attack that occurred as a global televised experience unfolding in real time for all the world to see. No tragedy has been so roundly condemned. In those first days after the attacks, the whole world poured its goodwill into us despite any grievances with the United States. What if we hadn't squandered that goodwill? What would have happened if we had used that outpouring of love as a balm for the wound? We could have grieved with all our fellow Americans, not just the ones who looked like us, but also the ones who looked like the people we feared. We could have grieved with people around the world and drawn connections between their suffering and ours. The mass killing of 3,000 people and the trauma of a world that watched could have sustained a kind of public grieving that expanded our sense of who counts as us beyond what anyone had previously experienced. It could have made us safer. Today, we might have remembered 9-11 as a tragedy that initiated an era of global cooperation rather than global war. To put this in context of our faith, we consider what the world might have looked like if we had given God what is God's, our grief and our rage, in the way scripture implores us to cast all our cares upon God. And this is, of course, in addition to Paul's instructions to the church in Rome, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is writ written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Give to God what is God's. 
which right now includes more grief and rage and revenge. In this particular moment in history, we have the opportunity to not make the same mistake we did just over 20 years ago. We have the chance to spend more on humanitarian aid and peace building than we do on supplying bombs and warplanes. There are already those who are working very hard to make this happen. On October 18th, several hundred U.S. Jews were arrested for sitting in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol building. Aided by a melodious shofar, two dozen rabbis spoke about the moral urgency of the moment, while thousands of fellow Jews chanted, cease fire now, outside the building. As David Zirin described, together it created a cacophony of righteous trouble in the best tradition of our people. It recalled our ancestors who stood with the oppressed, who helped build the labor movement, and who gave their lives to the anti-racist struggle. This moment demands a Jewish revolt against the false messiahs of Netanyahu's war cabinet, of the evangelical megachurches, and of too many politicians on both sides of the aisle. As Jews, we have a moral and political obligation to try to end the violence being inflicted in our name. And then on October 19th, 500 more Jews were arrested and 10,000 people took to the streets to support and demand that ceasefire. And then on Friday, well, suffice it to say that they have not stopped. They have continued since then and plan to continue to take action to demand an immediate ceasefire, to interrupt the cycle of violence, to give God what is God's our grief and rage and desire for revenge. Last week, many of us heard about the resignation of Josh Paul, who spent 11 years as the Director of Congressional and Public Affairs at the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, which oversees arms transfers to foreign nations. Mr. Paul wrote in his letter of resignation, let me be clear. Hamas's attack on Israel was not just a monstrosity. It was a monstrosity of monstrosities. I also believe that potential escalations by Iran-linked groups such as Hezbollah or by Iran itself would be a further cynical exploitation of the existing tragedy. But I believe to the core of my soul that the response Israel is taking and with it, the American support both for that response and for the status quo of the occupation will only lead to more and deeper suffering for both the Israeli and Palestinian people. This administration's response, and much of Congress's as well, is an impulsive reaction built on confirmation bias, political convenience, intellectual bankruptcy, and bureaucratic inertia. That is to say, it is immensely disappointing and, un and entirely unsurprising. Decades of the same approach have shown that security for peace leads to neither security nor for peace. The fact is blind support for one side is destructive in the long term to the interests of the people on both sides. It was this understanding that led Mr. Paul to resign from the U.S. government because he could not, quote, support a set of major policy decisions 
including rushing more arms to one side of the conflict that he believes to be short-sighted, destructive, unjust, and contradictory to the very rules we espouse. A world built around a rules-based order, a world that advances equality and equity, a world whose arc of history bends towards the promise of liberty and justice for all. If we want a world shaped by what we perceive to be our values, he continues, it is only by conditioning strategic imperatives with moral ones, by holding our partners and above all ourselves to those values that we will see it. It seems at the moment Caesar would have us believe that we have just for war money, but not as much just for food money. I wonder which money is God's. Given the end of the story, one might think that Jesus got through to those Pharisees and the Herodians. After all, the text says, when they heard this, they were amazed. It sort of leads us to believe that they had a light bulb moment, an aha moment. But we know the rest of the story. Instead of changing their ways, they dug in their heels. Just over 10 verses later, the Pharisees are back, this time with another question they hope will trip Jesus up. As if they didn't hear anything he taught them, we might shake our heads at this, oh, those Pharisees. They just keep doing what they've always done. They never learn. Will they say the same about us? You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.